0: Um, Some of you may be familiar with The Karate Kid, the movie The Karate Kid. Not the one with the Smith boy. Not, 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 not that one. That is not The Karate Kid. I don't know what. That's, that's the abomination that makes Desolate. So when you see... Oh no, no, it's not quite that bad, but it's pretty bad, in my opinion. In my opinion, okay? The original Karate Kid out in the 80s, Ralph Macchio, who is The Karate Kid... If you're not familiar with it, he, he's trying to learn karate, to fight these kids that are in karate and are beating them up. And he wants to partake in this tournament that he can show himself to be worthy and strong and all this stuff. And his teacher is, anybody remember? Mr. Miyagi, right? Well, Mr. Miyagi said, I'll, I'll teach you karate, and he has him washing cars and he has him painting the fence and he's got him scrubbing the deck and yeah (laughs) he's got him doing all this weird stuff and Daniel finally just blows up he's like you know I I, I come to you saying I want to learn karate and you've got me here doing your chores what's going on and then Mr. Miyagi says paint the fence and Daniel's like, what are you talking about? I said, paint the fence. Show me paint the fence. And Daniel does this. And as he does that, Mr. Miyagi punches high, and Daniel blocks it. And then wax on, wax off, and he's blocking punches with wax on, wax off. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh. He's been training him, and Daniel didn't get it. Daniel didn't see what was going on. He just thought he was just doing chores. But Mr. Miyagi was training him. And so then... I, I won't ruin the end for you, but here's Daniel Wins, okay? Just, uh, just, just so you know. Um, anyway, uh, so um, Daniel didn't understand what Mr. Miyagi was doing for him and having him do those chores. It looked like Mr. Miyagi was just being selfish, that he was self-absorbed, when really what he was doing was training, sharing blessing daniel son in a way that daniel son did not understand. Today, I have, I've really had my doors blown off with this passage this week. And I don't say that lightly because I think this is a crucial text for what it means to be a church, what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. I believe that what we'll see today in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20 is commonly abused, commonly misunderstood, and rarely practiced. And I think it is vital that we understand what's going on here. And I think it's not what we think. And I'm not trying to blow your mind with new information. It's the last thing I want to do. What I do want to do is blow your mind with the old information. I want to see it rightly. I want to divide it clearly and completely so that we can see to the bottom of it, cut from skin down into the bone into the very marrow of what this is talking about. And, and, and I feel like, um, and this is not about what I feel, Mr. Therapist, but I just really believe there's something here that is has the potential to help us be more church-like than we've ever been. In our in our life together as a church, so if you would please stand, we're going to read Matthew chapter eighteen, verses fifteen through twenty. And we know that these are the words of Jesus, and we confess and believe and stand out of reverence, understanding that these are breathed out by God Himself for the instruction of His people in this day for His glory. So. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you... Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to care, hands to do, what we see in your word today. And God, we know that it is absolutely crucial that it's in the power of your Spirit. Because in and of ourselves, God, we are not sufficient for these things. But because you did come down to rescue, brought us out of death, God, we can receive this and by your power we can do this. Help us, we ask. Teach us, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, what a passage. Familiar, right? I mean, we've heard this before. We've seen it before. Hope we see it clearly today. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So we get to start off in a weird way today as we start in this verse. Our first word here in the ESV is if. Okay? But the original text has a little word before if. And the KJV, good old King Jimmy, gets this right. Look, this is what the King James says. Here. So here's the ESV if your brother sins against you. King James says, moreover, if your brother shall trespass against thee. And what I wanna focus on is that word, moreover. Okay? It's not a major deal, but it is important. The presence of the moreover indicates a purposeful shift in the flow of the chapter. Okay, We've seen Jesus in chapter 18, which just keeps opening up and opening up and opening up to me that I'm just like, it's just marvelous. It's amazing what's in chapter 18. But in this chapter, we've seen Jesus addressing His men in response to their arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven as they were traveling back to Capernaum. Remember, He had taken a little child, an infant or a young toddler, And just in my mind, I'm just thinking one-year-old. Again, the text doesn't say that, but that's just what's in my mind. He's taking this little child and he's placed that child in his arms. Okay? And he says that unless one is converted and becomes like that little child, he would never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he said if someone would humble himself like that child, then he would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then... Jesus said that if anyone caused one of his little ones, one of his followers to sin, it would be better for that person if they had a giant millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. And he was saying there that it's imperative that we make sure as individual Christians that we do not put stumbling blocks in other people's paths, in other individuals' paths. Okay? That's very important. We don't put stumbling blocks in each other's way. And he wanted to make sure that we saw that clearly. And then last week, we saw that if one of God's children, one of, one of these little ones, which he symbolized by sheep in the passage last week, was despised by others, that he, Jesus, like the good shepherd that he is, would come and rescue that one single lonely sheep and bring it back to the fold where the 99 non-strayers were, making a bigger deal over the one that was found than the 99 who were never wandering off alone. So, let's bring all that together. All of these messages the last three weeks have served to show that we are to maintain an attitude of humility, knowing our own little oneness, okay? And recognizing that that same state, that little oneness state, is shared by all of our brothers and sisters, Be converted. Become like a child. Humble yourself like this child. Do not cause other children, other believers to stumble. And make sure you deal with your own sin. And do not despise your brother or sister, any of them individually. And know that He, Jesus, is looking out for each one individually to the point of charging angels from the throne room of God and going out to seek for one who is wandering off lonely by Himself. And that brings us to verse 15. And the moreover that I mentioned. As we continue to hear from Jesus in this chapter through the rest of the chapter into the new phase of teaching here, this moreover serves as a transition into this new phase of teaching. It's like all the former stuff is taught and in addition to that, on top of that. And then He begins what we'll look at today. What we've seen in the last three weeks was Jesus exhorting His people to treat others as special. Every other believer as special, with grace and love and careful attention and to be sure not to look down on them because how could you if you understand who you are? You're a little one, they're a little one. We can't look down on each other. And now, on top of that, moreover, now watch this, if your brother sins against you. So what has already been said is to make sure that you don't treat your fellow believers wrongly, but now... The shift is to if they treat you wrongly. Okay, you see the shift there? Don't treat other believers wrongly. Now, if they treat you wrongly, what are we going to do about it? Moreover, on top of that, what are we going to do about it? So this is is important. There, There is that shift and it's an important shift. Do your part not to mistreat your brother. And now, here's how to handle it if he mistreats you. But this is not a shift to a completely different subject. Moreover, on top of that, in addition to that, in a different situation, do more than what we just talked about. As we move into this passage, Jesus is calling on us to deal with our brother. Listen to me. Regarding his sin, and here's the big giant banner that I wish I could unfurl. (laughs) Deal with your brother. And his sin for the sake of your brother. Please don't miss that. Come into this passage with that mindset. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, this is not going to be about you fighting for your rights like the Beastie Boys, like Peter, and and whether I should pay the tax or not. Remember that? If your brother sins against you, that's not about you fighting for your rights. Jesus is not about to instruct His men about how to defend themselves or justify themselves when they're sinned against by other believers. He's going to teach them how to be like Him. How to go looking for the one that is astray. The emphasis is going to be found at the end of verse 15. If you have, if you will look here on here. And at the end there it says, you have gained your brother. That's the emphasis. That's that's the goal here. Okay, That's what we're looking for. The emphasis is going to be on gaining your brother. The emphasis is on the good of the one who has sinned, not the defense or revenge of the one sinned against. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Moreover, I've left that in there from the King James... If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So let's break this down. Who is this dealing with? If your brother, which is your fellow believer in Jesus, okay, this is a Christian dealing with a Christian. This is you dealing with another Christian, okay? And if your fellow believer, this brother, does something, he sins against you. So this is a scenario where a Christian is sinned against by another Christian. And Jesus makes it personal. Your brother sins against you. Now, what does it mean for your brother to sin against you? Okay? Let's look at the definition for the word sins. Hamartano. You may have heard, you may hear sometimes the study of hamartiology. That's the study of sin. Okay, 38 times in the New Testament, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, translated as sin 38 times, trespass three times, offend once, and for your faults once. And it means to be without a share in, to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken, to miss or wander from the path of uprightness and honor, to do or go wrong, to wander from the law of God, to violate God's law. Okay, so I think we're like, okay, yeah, that's sin. That makes sense. So from these definitions, this one definition with all these different definitions in it, I think we can say that my brother sinning against me is my brother doing me wrong. He's dishonoring me or missing the mark in my expectations in what I think he should do. Now, that could cover a lot of things. But remember, our goal as taught by Jesus is how to handle this situation For the benefit of my sinning brother, so this is not about me being offended or me being upset about something that doesn't go the way that I think it should. RC Sproul said that this passage, and this is this this is kind of a a tough thing to grapple with. But listen to me, RC Sproul said that this this passage is about offense given, not offense taken. Okay, you with me? Because that, that's a pretty important principle. This passage is not dealing with you being offended. This passage is dealing with your brother sinning against you. It's focusing on the offense given, not the way that you took it. Okay, that's that's very important. He also said, Sproul said, that this is not about peccadillos. Anybody know what that, that word means? Peccadillos. It means little sins. Okay, pecca was... Uh, I can't remember the, the Latin word that is that is sin, but it's peca, pecarte, or something like that. And illos means little. So these are li- it's, this is not about peccadillos. This is not about little petty offenses. It's not about you getting on my nerves because I'm easily agitated or bothered. That's not what this is about. We confess our sins in those instances for being easily annoyed and not loving someone in a godly way. So when we talk about our brother sinning against us... We're talking about dealing with sins that are adversely affecting someone else. Their sin affecting them. So that they might not be separated from me or from other believers as a result. So this sins in this passage in the your brother sins against you clause has to be understood in that light. Jesus is not sending us out as sin assassins. Snipers trying to spy out reasons to be offended by others so that we can shoot them down or degrade them and tell them how bad they are because we are so high and holy. It's exactly the opposite, actually. So looking at that definition again, this passage is about when my brother misses the mark, heirs, is mistaken, is wandering from or violating the law of God. Yes, all of these, but I think that first part of the definition is really big here. To be without a share in. You see, your sinning brother is missing fellowship with you and with the church. Think about that a second. Your sinning brother is missing fellowship with you and with others. His sin is separating him from the flock and he is in danger of being without a share in the corporate aspect of what's going on with God's people. And your concern, your goal... And his sin against you is to help reestablish that fellowship with you and with the church. So you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now do you see that a little clearer? So you go to your brother, you tell him his fault, his sin between you and him alone. Now that's pretty clear and simple, right? That's not difficult. To understand. It might be difficult to do, but it's not difficult to understand. Your brother sins against you and your response is to go to him alone, tell him his fault, just the two of you, hoping he hears what you say and agrees, confesses and repents. And then if he listens to you, what happens? It says you have gained your brother. And remember, that's the goal. Your brother being gained is the goal. Let's look at that word gained. It's important too. 17 occurrences, translated as gain, 13 times, win, twice, get gain, once. And I don't know what that VR gain means. I don't know what that means. But that's once, so it's a peccadillo. We don't care, right? It means to gain, to acquire, to get gain. Metaphorically, of gain arising from shunning or escaping from evil, where we say to spare oneself or be spared, to gain anyone, to win him over to the kingdom of God, to gain one to faith in Christ, to gain Christ's favor and fellowship. So from this definition, to gain my brother means that I win him, I acquire him, which means that I had lost him, and now he's back. Now I'm not saying, nor is this passage saying, that this person's soul was lost because he had committed sin. That's not what this is saying. Any way, way, shape, or form. So don't go there. It's that I had lost my brother. He was not with me. We were not in fellowship with each other. And now that I've brought up his sin and he hears me and addresses that sin, now he's back with me. We're in fellowship again and we have a restored relationship. That's gaining my brother here. And that is the goal. I can't say it enough. That's the goal. To gain my brother to be of the same mind again. To be in fellowship again. Now think about that. My goal in addressing my brother's sin is so we can be in fellowship again. I can gain him back into my life. I was at a loss without him. Kind of like that shepherd who was missing his one sheep, right? I found that which was gone from me in my presence. And that's the goal. And in this verse, it's like, yay, it happened. It happened. I went to him, I brought it up, he listened to me, really sorry. Even in pandemic, we hug, because doggone, this is a big deal, right? Praise God, man, I've I've gained my brother back. So, end of story, close the book, we can go home, right? Well, it doesn't always go that way, does it? What if he doesn't listen or agree when I come out and point out a sin? Now, could you imagine somebody comes and says, hey, we need to talk. and need to talk to you about something. For the last week, I, you know, I heard that you were talking about me to somebody else. And, it, it, you know, it was wrong. It was sinful. You were, you were judging me. You were, you were gossiping about me. Um, you were spreading lies about me. And we need to talk about that. And again, your heart is that you might gain your brother. And he's like, I wasn't talking about you. Well, man, I heard you say my name specifically and talk about an instance when we were together. No, no, you're just judging me. Who do you think you are? Well, I just... Man, I just... I just want us to be restored, and I just... I just want to let you know that you know, it's dangerous to walk in sin. Oh, so so you're better than me? Oh no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, hey, let you know. I just let's address this because you know I, I need you to know that I'm here to gain you back. Oh, well, I'm the bad one. So I'm the sinner. So that can happen, right? So then what do you do? Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so my effort to be back in fellowship with my brother hits a roadblock. He doesn't listen. He tells me I'm wrong. He tells me to buzz off or the ever so cliche, who are you to judge me, comes out of his mouth what then? Well, you had went alone. Now, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you. You went. He said, whatever. And no restoration took place. The gaining your brother didn't happen. If you know your brother has sinned and you took it to him and he disagrees, then move past just you and him And bring one or two other people. Take one or two others along with you and that means exactly what it says. Now you have to bring up your brother's sin to other people. Before now, it was your brother's sin against you. And you tried to deal with it just between the two of you. Now, it's time to involve other people. And note that progression. You don't go telling other people first. That's not the first thing that you do. You don't tell everyone or anyone about this before you address it between you and your brother alone first. And that's pretty important. Your brother sins against you. Your, for, your first move is toward him, not someone or anyone else. Then if he doesn't listen to you, then you involve one or two more. One or two. You don't get on Facebook and tell the story and talk about this anonymous person who you just wish would understand what you were saying. And everybody's like, oh, that sounds so sad. That happened to me once. And then it turns into a 628 post thread where everybody's talking about where they've been wronged. And everybody's trying to figure out, who's he talking about? I bet he's talking about so-and-so. I heard him get... I I bet that's what's going on. First go to him, and if he doesn't listen to you, then involve one or two more people. And that looks like finding a faithful brother or sister or two, one or two, explaining the situation to them and enlisting their help to do what? To try to gain your brother back. You're still not in a court of law. You're still not trying to prove him wrong. You're trying to gain your brother back. You're not gossiping or slandering them. You're telling what has happened so that the one or two others will know that situation and will be able to do what? Jesus says, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that sounds like courtroom material and actually harkens back to Old Testament language. Um, I don't have it in here. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So that's what God said in the Old Testament in His law. And so what's happening now is so that this doesn't just become a he-said-she-said deal... It comes to this point. Now you've enlisted other ears and hearts to discern what's really going on here. They will help establish evidence of the charges and can help judge between you and your brother. It seems very possible at, that at this point, the one or two may possibly say, Well, brother, now that we've heard you both out, there's no evidence that your brother did actually sin against you. That could happen, right? Or they could say to your sinning brother, "It would seem that what was told us is true. The evidence points it out. They are judging, they are discerning who is accurate and what needs to be done as a result to reestablish this fellowship." Um, now remember, the goal in all this is restoration of fellowship between you and your sinning brother. You're like you've said that 628 times. I hope to say another thousand before we're done. You are not trying to be right or to be proven right, or to justify yourself. You're seeking help to find ways to help your brother if he is sinning or to correct your faulty thinking if you're seeing or looking at things wrongly because that can happen too. And if you get your thinking straight, if it was wrong, that can reestablish fellowship as well. So this one or two is brought in to establish everything, all the evidence as witnesses of it all. And Jesus' narrative here seems to imply that this brother is sinning And the one or two are there to verify that. They are there to give witness to the reality of what is going on and to plead with this brother to repent of or forsake his sin. Why? So that he can be back in right fellowship with you. And now with them because sin puts us out of right fellowship with God's people. This sinning brother may need this second layer of voices to be clear on what he has done or is doing and thus stop it. And maybe he confesses and repents. Or maybe he doesn't. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay. So now we've reached the place where this brother who sinned against you has not listened to you and now has not listened to the one or two others that you brought back with you to talk with him about it all. So then what? Now it's finally time to let this guy have it, right? This old hard head, he needs to learn his lesson, doesn't he? No. What is the goal of all of this? To gain our brother. To win him back. So, if he refuses to listen to you or the one or two others that you brought in the round of one or two, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, we hear that and we're so familiar with this word, we don't think anything of it. We just think this, right? But this is only the second time this word's been brought up in Matthew's gospel. And technically, the church that we know of today hasn't really been born yet. That'll happen on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit comes and tongues of fire fall down on people and the gospel is preached, that's the day that the church that we know it today was born. So we hear this and we think church, but these disciples probably would not have received it like we do at this point. And the word for church, which we saw back in chapter 16, when Jesus said that he would build his church following Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the word for church is ecclesia. And it means an assembly that is called out for a particular reason. And we know that Jesus was surely calling out an assembly of people for the purpose of being His representatives in the world and to show the world what His kingdom looks like. And it's this called out assembly that Jesus is saying to bring this brother who will not address his sin, that's who you bring it to finally. It's what we are now. It is what we are now a group of believers who meet together for worship and who share life together. We are a covenant signing, covenant membership church. And in that covenant, we say that we are going to share life together. We're going to be accountable to the teaching of the church. We're going to be present when the church is present if we at all possibly can. Why? So that we can share life together, so that we can worship together. And we see it so serious, so important, that we sign covenants. Solemn, binding agreements saying this is a big deal. Think Old Testament when they would cut the animals apart, let the blood drain down. And y'all have heard that so many times I won't go back through it. But it's bloodshed worthy. That's how important a covenant is. And that's why we are covenant membership in what we do here with our membership. Because it's super important. Duper important. And so Jesus is saying, if he won't listen to you, if he won't listen to the one or two that you've taken, take it to the people that you share life together with. And let's address it this way. It's this called out assembly that Jesus is saying, bring this brother to a group of believers who meet together for worship and who share life together. And Jesus is saying that after your brother doesn't listen to you and doesn't listen to the one or two, that you've got to try to gain his fellowship back by taking it to the authority on fellowship. And who's the authority on fellowship? The church of Jesus Christ. We're fellows in the same ship, right? this group of believers that you're sharing life with, the citizens of Jesus' kingdom, should be the next to hear what this brother has done. Now why? Why would Jesus say that we should take it to the church? What's the goal here? Again, we want to see this brother restored. We want to see this brother back in our fellowship. Maybe he's been coming the whole time, but he's not been in fellowship with us. His sin is keeping him from really being in intimate, close, personal contact with us, even though he wouldn't say that. So we want to win him back. We want to show him what real public worship fellowship looks like, life-sharing, covenant-sharing fellowship looks like. And so we bring it to the ones that we've signed up to do this with. Where is the clearest picture of fellowship in the kingdom of heaven? It's in the church. And the whole life of the church is built on fellowship. So if there's an unrepentant member of that fellowship, they have to know. And if there's anything or anyone who can help restore this one to fellowship, it's the church, and that's the goal. So if someone is unrepentant, the church has to know if they won't listen previously. So bring the case to the church. Now there's no specifics here as to what that looks like. Do we stand up in a public meeting and say, "Bob was watching the Karate Kid," and I told him not to do that? And I don't. I don't think that's the tone here. And again, it's not specific. Is, is it? Is it brought up as an announcement? Is it? Um, do we bring the person before the church? Is it just brought to the elders? I, I don't know. Jesus doesn't say. And actually, the church that we know today. Wasn't present in that form then, but Jesus was making it clear that the next step is to let the assembly know what's going on with this whole deal. And there's a reason for that we'll get to later. Let the church know that, the, that one of their group is unrepentant and needs to be addressed. One of the flock needs pulled back in for the purpose of restoration. Not to shame them, not to dismiss them, not to prove them wrong, to gain your brother. But does that automatically mean that it's going to work or be effective? No. Hopefully the brother repents at the admonition of the church. But if he doesn't, and that's possible, then what? Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, and it's like even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now what's that mean? Sounds real... Doesn't it? I mean... I mean, we, we don't really have a, a context in our life, in our day-to-day, of what it means to be a Gentile and a tax collector. But I'll tell you this, Gentiles and tax collectors were excluded from the assembly. They weren't allowed in the synagogue where the Jews worshipped the true God. So there's an exclusion here. Okay, now listen, this is important. What does it mean to let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? Jews saw Gentiles as unclean and nobody was as hated as a tax collector in that day. Just ask the guy who wrote our book today, right? Matthew, who was a tax collector. So is Jesus telling his men to hate and to exclude this unbelieving brother? The answer to that question is hate, no. Exclude, yes. Jesus has already shown what he thinks of Gentiles and tax collectors at this point of his ministry, hadn't he? He's loved them. He's called them. He's healed them. He's blessed them. Gentiles and tax collectors. Again, he invited Matthew in to be one of his apostles. Now, has he hated any of these people? No, absolutely not. But he has seen how they are excluded from the gathering of the Jews who called themselves God's people. So what he seems to be saying here is that this unrepentant believer... And remember, he is a believer... He hasn't lost his salvation. This unrepentant believer who refuses to listen to the assembly of God's people is not to be hated or despised, but is to be excluded from the assembly. Hopefully for the purpose of what? Restoration. Put him out, hopefully, so that we can bring him back in. Now, have you ever been purposefully excluded from something or someone? Not much makes you want to be a part of something like being excluded from it. Right? Oh, you can't come to that. You're like, "What is it? I, what is it? Why can't I come? I want to walk And then it dominates your thinking. This brother is to be excluded from fellowship from the table. From the functions of the assembly with the hopes that him missing this stuff moves him to repentance because we've established it by ourselves, we've established it with one or two, and now we've established it with the whole church. This guy is sinning. And unless he repents, he can't partake of what we're partaking of. He's not lost, but he is unrepentant and he has to be excluded. Why? so that he might be moved to want to be back with us. It's not looking down our self-righteous noses at this disgusting creature. Oh, you disgust me. But rather, sadly saying no to this one that we love... Against our wants and wishes, hoping he is moved to come back home by confessing and forsaking his sin. His sin which has been firmly established now, even to the point of before the church. Could you imagine walking up to this table and Don or Bob, Don or Bob or I saying, Sorry brother, we can't allow you to partake this morning. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, some of you will be like, okay. Okay. Because you don't understand the significance of this The beauty and the power of this The God ordainedness of this Let me tell you what If I walked up to this table And these two men looked at me and said no Oh my heavens I don't know what I would do I hope I would say Tell me what, what, what is it again I hope that's what I would do Because this is special this is special. Amen. And to be excluded from any of this, hopefully, would move me to repentance. Hopefully, would move this brother to repentance. Now, what's that look like? We'll look at that in application, but we've got some more verses to get through before we finish. Truly, verse 18, Jesus says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, we saw that phrase as well back in Matthew 16. When Jesus was talking about building his church, he said that he was giving the keys to the kingdom and said that this binding, loosing thing, the same thing he's saying here. The best rendering of the phrase there and here is that whatever you bind or loose on earth shall have already been bound or loosed in heaven. And it means that we're doing here on earth what has been done in heaven. So here, when the church excludes this unrepentant brother here on earth, heaven has already done this and, and agrees with it. We're operating in agreement with heaven. We're doing what has to be done. Jesus laid this out, and in heaven it's written for eternity that this is how you handle it. So when we say this is how we're going to handle it, heaven says, yeah, that's what we say. God says that. The angels say that. Jesus says that. So that's what's going on here. We're doing what has to be done based on what heaven's already established. We are making visible here on earth what would otherwise be unseen in heaven. It's a phrase showing agreement and cooperation. The church is doing what God has said should be done and is lining up with His will here on earth as it is in heaven. So this exclusion in the hopes of restoration is God's will. And the binding and loosing done here shows that will clearly to us as a church, to the unrepentant believer, and to the world in general. God has ordained and endorsed this action. And that's further shown in the next verse, 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Jesus says that the agreement shown in the working of the church here is literally empowered by God himself. The verse itself has been wrongly used so many times as a call to prayer and an encouragement that those prayers will be heard. And that is not what Jesus is saying here at all. So stop using it for that. When we're about to pray and say, wherever two or three are gathered, and, and they ask anything about... No, that's next. Sorry. Where we're gathered is next. If, if two of us agree on anything, God's got to do it. That's not what He's saying here. Okay? That's not the context here. We're not twisting God's arm and making Him do what we say two of us say He should do. Okay? And again, this has been really abused as a call to prayer and encouraging people that their prayers will be heard. Jesus is saying here in the context that when the church is in agreement, especially in this very specific instance of a sinning brother, God the Father is doing what needs to be done. If the church comes to the conclusion that this brother needs to be excluded for his good with a hopeful eye toward restoration, the Father will move to see it done. Here we see God taking to the hills to rescue that one wayward sheep in a tangible way, don't we? And the Father is only echoed in the actions and power of the Son. Verse 20, our last verse for the day. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus finishes our section today by showing his hearty approval of all of this as well. Again, this verse has been misquoted so often in so many small groups or prayer, uh, in so many sparsely attended church services. We look at the numbers and say, there's not many of us but where two or three are gathered. Jesus is in their midst. That's not what He's saying here. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is not saying that it only takes a few people to make Him show up. Hopefully, Jesus is there when you're praying alone. Right? He's saying that if the church assembled whether it be two or three or a hundred or a thousand, if that church assembled assembles and acts in His name, following His instructions and doing His will, He is there among them to oversee and empower whatever is being done. The church assembled in the power of the Holy Spirit, acted upon by the Father, has the Son operating in their midst. Jesus is saying, do this. It is the very will of God. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit... That God will operate in sure and powerful ways to see it done. And what is this thing being done? The seeking of the church to see a wayward brother gained back into fellowship by admitting and forsaking his sin. God will see that this happens. So do what God has ordained, knowing both His direction and His participation is promised. That's what he's saying here. So then how do we do it? that's where we turn to application. Here's where it gets really real. Okay? Where to start here? So many things could be taken out of this passage, but the clear truth is simple. It's pretty evident what's being said here. Okay? We are going to look at three R's. We got pirate application points this morning. R. Restrain, refrain, and regain. Restrain, refrain, regain. First one is restrain. How do we apply this passage? First and foremost, listen to me. Individual Christian and corporate church. You, you are called upon by the Son of God in the Word of God To confront sin in the life of your brothers and sisters. You are. You, church, individually and corporate, you are a restraining force to keep sin from the people of God and the people of God from sin. Now let me ask you this question. How are you doing with that? How am I doing with that? I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to make you feel bad. I'm here to encourage you and exhort you and use the Word of God to show you and me that I've got a role to play in the sin of my brother. When was the last time you confronted sin in someone else's life? You say, well, it's saying if he sinned against you. Listen, if he sinned against anybody in this building, he sinned against you. There is no private sin. Private sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. I don't remember who said that. That's not original to me. If you see somebody sinning and nobody's addressing it, whose job is it to address it? It's yours. Go to your brother. Why? We'll get to that in a minute. But it is your job to help restrain sin in the presence of your brother and your sister in Christ. It is your job. When's the last time you confronted sin in someone else's life? Let me ask you a different question. When's the last time you saw sin in somebody else's life? Probably yesterday. Maybe today. What did you do about it? And I'll pray for them. It's not enough. It's not good enough. You don't truly love your brother or sister if you can watch them sin and let them do it. Would you let your kids play in the road? Or around a dog that you knew was going to hurt them? Well, heavens no. I love my kids. I want to take care of them. Exactly. When was the last time you sat down with someone and said that you were concerned about a sinful habit, pattern or act in that brother or sister's life? Have you ever in your life went through the process outlined by Jesus today if your brother or sister is resistant to that correction? Have you ever taken one or two along to establish evidence if a brother or sister doesn't repent after you've come along, or reported it to the church if it didn't work? I have been in public ministry for over 20 years and I can think of two or three times that I've seen this played out. Something's wrong. Because it's not like we're not sinning. And it's not like we're just all so sensitive to our own sins that nobody's got to bring it up to us. I'm asking you, I'm begging you today. If you see sin in my life, tell me about it. Confront me with it out of love. Brother, I'm concerned with you. I see this sinful pattern in your life. We all have blind spots. And we need each other. That's part of what it means to be the church. And one of the greatest restraining forces for sin in the church is other believers who care enough about me to come and say, Brother, we got to talk. You're walking in sin. No, I'm not. Brother, I believe you are. Let me explain to you why. I disagree. Well, I'll bring somebody else and we'll talk about it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, we need to. Because we're in covenant together, and we love each other, and I want to see you reestablished in fellowship with God. With each other. Oh, so now you're saying I'm lost? No, nope, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that your sin is having an adverse effect on your life and in the life of the church, and I want to see you restored. Well, bring them. I, I'll listen to them. One or two people come. No. But we got to talk to the church. You going to do that to me? You're going to bring me before the church over this? Yeah. Because I love you. I care about you. Two or three times in my 20-year-plus ministry, something's wrong. We have to be doing this. We have to be addressing the sin in each other's lives in order to help us weed it out. We have to. Besides seeing it in our passage today, which is clearly shown, it's clearly shown in several places in the epistles. I'm going to choose one. I want to read 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to this. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, Paul says to the Corinthians, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, bleh, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, the apostle says, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of. Now listen, sexual immorality or greed... Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one? For what, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Let me read that again. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, we could spend a couple of weeks in that chapter alone. That's the whole chapter, by the way, 13 verses. But in our application point for refrain, I'm sorry, restrain, restrain, refrains next. For our role in addressing other people's sins, do you see what Paul's saying here for, for the church in Corinth to do? Let me summarize it. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Cleanse out the old leaven. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, or drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? You've got to do some hermeneutical gymnastics to say this means anything except put that person out. Paul said even to the point of death. So this flesh might be destroyed, but a spirit might be saved. Well, I I can't do that. You have to do that. We have to do that. Why? Why? Because we love our brother. And Jesus said in our passage today, and Paul just said in this passage, that what we do, we do in the power of the Lord Jesus Himself. The very authority that He has. So my lack of loving my brother enough to confront his sin is sin in and of itself. I'm choosing to walk in my own power, not in the power of the Lord Jesus. And it affects all of church life. It affects the sacraments. It affects membership. It affects fellowship. But, but we say, we, we can't do this, can we? I mean, can we? Well, they'll just leave and go to another church. I can't help that. Hopefully, I have enough contact with the other pastor to say, listen, brother, we put this guy out so that he might be moved to repentance. If you take him in, you're violating the principles of the Scripture. There's a church on every corner of every road in Beckley. But we have to do this. We can't let these excuses be the reasons we don't do this. We are trying to point out our brother's sin so that he might be restored. And we're not just trying to pinpoint or or, or be nitpicky and say, Well, this gets on my nerves. I don't like it when you chew that hard candy during service. It really bothers me. That's not what we're talking about. He's saying, point out your brother's sin so that you can have restoration and fellowship with that brother. And listen, church, if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. It is up to us to restrain sin within the church. But be careful because this could very easily turn south really quick. So what do we do? Second application point, refrain Restrain, refrain. This is about refraining from thinking you are in any way superior to the one whom you are confronting sin in. Newsflash, you're a sinner too. And you are capable of whatever it is they're doing and far worse. So this is not about, well, we're, we're the holy called out assembly and you don't fit in with us. If that's your attitude, you're wrong and that's sin in of itself. So refrain from that. James says this for we all stumble in many ways. Amen. First John 1 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So refrain from exalting yourself over your brother. Galatians 6 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgr- in any transgression, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So refrain from doing this in an attitude of haughtiness or pride or arrogance or strict judgmentalness. Don't do it. You're not any better than anybody else. You are a little one in Jesus' arms just like they're a little one. And this little one is out by themselves and need more help than I need at the moment. I'm not any better than them. And tomorrow it may, be, it may be me that's out there. So refrain from exalting yourself over your sinning brother in, all, in this whole process. And finally, the point of it all, the restraining and the refraining, is so that we might regain our brother. The point and the purpose of all of this today is so that you might gain your brother who was lost to you because of his sin. And if we miss this, we miss the whole passage and everything it's calling us to. The whole point of Matthew 18 has been Jesus calling us to care more about our brother than we do ourselves. What if we could get to that point even when our brother sins against us? Well, it's not an unattainable ideal It's exactly what we're called to. That's why I made such a big deal about the moreover thing. This is not just about you keeping your own little house clean. This is about you caring enough to go out and regain somebody who has offended you. The goal is to regain him. And again, how and why? How do we do that? Let's look at this. Ephesians 4:32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. How can I forgive my brother who sinned against me and forgive him to the point that I love him so much that I go out after him? Because I realize that's exactly what God did for me. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You came down to find us. Let us out of death. He loved us that much, so I should love you that much. And if you're lost and wandering around in sin, I need to go out and find you. And forgive you and love you because that's the way that God loved and served me. Now, let me finish this with that guy in Corinth who was with his stepmom. And that should make you go, ew, okay? Okay? Paul said, deliver him over to Satan so that his body might be destroyed in order that his soul might be saved. What happened to him? Some of you know this, some of you don't. Watch this. When we talk about regaining our brother. 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11. through Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that... We would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul said, bring him back. It's enough. It's enough. He suffered enough. He's been alone enough. He's been excluded enough. He's sorry. And if you see fit to forgive him, I say forgive him and I'll forgive him. And we're outwitting Satan by doing this very thing. Welcome him back. Gain your brother back. Probably with tears and laughter. And thank God you're back. I love you so much. I've missed you so much. Not, "Mm, there he is. Hi. Forgive him. Love him. Because you've regained him. And that's the goal in all of this. Refrain sin among your brothers and sisters. Refrain from exalting yourself, thinking you're better than any one of us. And may it be your goal, your passion, your pursuit, to regain the brother or sister who is willfully sinning so that you can have proper fellowship with him and with us. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Who is sufficient for these things? Not me. But, by the power of your Spirit, we are. We are sufficient for these very things. And you have made sure that we know that and see that. God, help us to do it. Help us to be the ones who actively restrain the forces of sin in our brother and sister's lives. Of course, we have to deal with our own sin, of course. But may we not be content with keeping our own stoop clean. Help us to go out and love our brother, to restrain the forces of sin in our midst, to refrain from exalting ourselves above each other, and to make it our goal to regain our brother who may be walking in sin. Make our hearts right so that our actions may be right as well, God. We ask for you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.